1: The book is titled, Torn Together, One Family's Journey Through Addiction, Treatment, and the Restaurant Industry. And our guests and authors, Sean Pine and Scott Magnuson. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Great to visit with you. Your book is biographical in nature and deals with difficult time you both encountered in married life, married together. Um, What was the foundation that caused this story to have to be written. Why was there a story in the first place, torn together?
2: Well, I uh, started working in a restaurant and using drugs when I was 14. And throughout most of my childhood and, and well into my adult life, drinking and drug use was a everyday norm. Um, and during the whole time, I was still working my way up in the restaurant industry as well. And the two kind of go together. So when, we, when I finally had enough and went through treatment, we started working on a nonprofit called Restaurant Recovery. And uh, as we started writing bios for Restaurant Recovery, we ended up just extending those and came up with the idea to do this book to try to help some other families.
1: Now, Sean, you uh, are involved as co-author of this book. Did you also experience the same challenges that Scott re- was encountering as far as addiction and, and other challenges?
3: No, I had never worked in a restaurant before I met Scott, and, you know, that's where we met at the Argonaut. And um, I had a completely different upbringing. I never did drugs. I never drank when I was a kid. You know, we, it, it just completely, we were completely opposite.
1: <laughs> hmm. Opposites do attract sometimes. You still got together, and you mentioned the Argonaut, which was a restaurant in Washington, D.C., I believe. Did there, Is that restaurant still in existence? Is it still operational?
2: Yes, we are celebrating 10 years this year.
1: Congratulations. And at one point, there was a fire at the Argonaut. What was the cause of that? Was it just one of those things that happened? Uh, what what uh, caused that to, to take place, and how did that impact your relationship?
2: Um, it was electrical. Uh, it started in the housing of the electric meter, which just so happened to be in our kitchen. And uh, luckily, nobody was in the building at the time. It was uh, after we would closed for the night. It, I think, it, it, if anything, the fire really brought us together and showed us what kind of character we have and also showed us uh, what kind of community we live in. I mean, the support we got was just amazing.
1: This book uh, is 202 pages. You have photos in here and uh, looks like a charming childhood Scott looking at a photo of you as a young child on the beach, smiling and being uh, just one of those effervescent children, maybe mischievous, I don't know, that's a possibility. It reminds me of my early pictures to some degree, I was a little mischievous. Did you grow up in a traditional family as is generally considered uh, common in the United States?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was middle class military family. Um, I think the only thing that was different was that uh, you know, as a child, my dad was always getting stationed in other places, so we we ended up you know moving a lot. So you can never really grow roots.
1: Your your mother's passing and your dad's passing. How did that impact you? Were you already in a state of addiction at that time, or were you in recovery?
2: Oh, my, my dad's still alive. My mother passed mother. away uh, January 1st of 2000. I was already well into, my when my mother first got sick, I was a child and she had her first kidney transplant. Mm. And, uh, and then as uh, she was needing a second one, I was already well into my high school and uh, drug use. And when she passed away, I was pretty much a, a mess already and that just kind of escalated.
1: The initial stages of getting into behavior that led to addiction, is that was it common in the environment you grew up in as far as the schools and the associates that you were running around with, or was this something you pursued on your own?
2: You know, everybody finds each other, and I, I can't blame the people I hung out with. I can say they probably weren't the best influence on me, um, but we all kind of found it together, I think.
1: Now, Sharon, how did you fit into this? You met Scott and obviously saw something in his character that was worth pursuing. How did you fit into this story, Torn Together?
3: Well, it's you know, we alternate chapters, so we kind of go through the same events from his perspective and my perspective. Um, so we met, you know, the first week that the Argonaut opened, I was a customer, and um, then here we are 10 years later. <laughs> um, so the book just pretty much chronicles the experiences that we, we both went through, but just from his perspective as an addict and my perspective as, like, a codependent.
1: Sure. And as a restaurant owner, if you had only cooked poor quality foods on that opening, perhaps you and Sharon wouldn't have gotten together. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, perhaps. D- perhaps. What is the style of restaurant? What What is the type of, of uh, approach you've used to uh, to ga- get, gain a, a following?
2: We are a neighborhood um, gathering place. Um, so we live two blocks from the restaurant. We're very active in the community. Um, we're very welcoming to all, which is different than some of the other places around here that may cater towards niches and certain clientels, But we just serve good, solid comfort comfort food, and you know, a lot of really good beer.
1: So I don't need a sh- a, sh- a shirt tie and a, a suit to uh, to be served in your restaurant.
2: Oh no, a t-shirt and flip flops are great.
1: That works as well. <laughs> uh, why did you decide you wanted to share your story again? What was the impetus behind that?
2: Well, it
3: was you know when I was living through Scott's active addiction, and I just felt so alone. I just this is the kind of book that I would have love to have read because there are lots of books about addiction, but addiction in the restaurant industry is kind of a different bird the you know, there's very few other industries where you're kind of expected or allowed to be under the influence when you're at work. So everybody's bottoms are really low and um, there's just nobody who I felt I could be honest with about the the Scott's behavior because his behavior so out of control in a way that other addicts' behavior is not quite as out of control as people in the restaurant industry, so hmm. from my perspective, that's why I, I, would have, I would have loved to have read this book, just to know that I wasn't alone.
1: And how long did it take to complete?
2: About three years. About three years.
1: Three years, and was yeah. it a progressive and self-discovery process as well?
2: Uh, very much so, um, and I think for me, it's it was important for me on an, a couple different reasons, one being that I need that something to keep that addiction in my mind and, and remember what I was like and where I came from to help me in my recovery. And I think that being open about it, it helps in a number of ways. One is to try to destigmatize it. You know, it shouldn't be you shouldn't be stigmatized for wanting to get help for having a problem. And I think that that's one of the reasons that uh, addicts and you know alcoholics and, and In the country, they have problems because everybody looks at them uh, differently once they find out, and they think treatment's a bad thing.
1: What is the message, what is the underlying lesson from your book that you want to share with the world?
2: That you're not alone. People, It's okay to ask for help.
1: And your audience, you have targeted, or at least conveyed your story through the eyes of a restaurateur. There are people who are not in the restaurant business that may be... Surprised, alarmed, or even uh, amused by your story, are you wanting to reach a broad audience with your autobiographical sketch?
2: I think so. I think it, you know almost everybody now is has some kind of addiction is either has a family member or a friend um, that has issues with alcoholism or drug use disorder. Um, and I think that everybody can find something in this book to to kind of latch on to.
1: Did either of you recount a story or an incident that may be shocking to the reader, or uh, that may have uh, have surprised even you when you began to tell it?
2: Oh, I think the whole well, book is that way. <laughs> yeah, uh, my it's funny when you put things on paper. Like you don't having things spread out over ten years, it, it doesn't seem that bad. But when you write it on paper and you realize exactly like, all the things that you did and you kind of read them in that order, you're like, whoa, maybe I was a mess.
1: Mm. Sharon, take a, a couple of sentences or paragraphs and introduce this book to my listeners. Get them interested in getting their own personal copy of Torn Together.
3: Like read read something or
1: just... Re- read or account, recount from your perspective why this book is important and why it is more than just another book on the shelf.
3: Um, I think there aren't many books that have been written with this kind of dual perspective um, that are co-written together. Um, So that's one thing that's very different about this book. And two, I just think I would describe it as brutally and unrelentingly honest. And um, I think that it gives um, a lot of support or offers a lot of support to people who are going through the same things that we went through to um, not sugarcoat any of the, the stuff that we went through.
1: Any challenges that you had to overcome to get this done, besides bringing up the past?
3: Uh, besides bringing up the past, um, it's just a process. I think, kind of healing together as we're writing it, and we it took a long time, not because we worked on it constantly, but because we would have to put it down sometimes and and kind of process what we had both written. There have been, and I, r- I write in the book that there are things that Scott is not able to say to me that he was able to write for, for his chapters, and, and that we just needs time to go through.
1: Uh, Sharon, you describe your upbringing as being the child of self-described hippies. Uh, what was that like?
3: It was normal for me, I guess. Uh, we, just, we had a garden, and um, we lived in the same place forever, and um, I think as a family are pretty open, you know, with feelings and, um, just looking out for other people. Um, but also contrasted with Scott that just the continuity of staying in one place, um, for my whole life
1: was, was the contrast between your life and Scott's Scott share a little more information about your nonprofit association or organization that you have been involved with.
2: So after, uh, I got out of treatment, um, We saw this need in the restaurant industry um, for places for people to turn to because there is no place for anyone to kind of turn to. So we started a nonprofit called Restaurant Recovery. um, And our mission is to help find and pay for reputable treatment for career restaurant workers, uh, help their families, and uh, set up a support network for people that are in recovery. Uh, one of the big messages I got going through treatment was I'd have to find a new job, and there's no way that I could still work in a restaurant and uh, stay sober. And I think that it's scary enough going through treatment, and to have a therapist tell you that, um, something needs to change. And uh, we wanted to prove and, and help people and let them know that it is possible to stay in the industry and uh, live a good life clean and sober.
1: Thank you yeah. for sharing your story. The title of the book, again, is Torn Together, One Family's Journey Through Addiction, Treatment, and the Restaurant Industry. That part is very unique. Our authors, co-authors, Sharon Pine and Scott Magnuson. Thank you for joining me today. Where do my listeners get a copy of your of your work?
2: Uh, you can go to either authorhouse.com uh, and buy it through the publisher, or uh, Amazon has it as well as Barnes & Noble.
1: And is there a follow-up book that might be in the works, or is this, is this the culmination of a lot of work, and you're glad it's behind you?
2: Well, I think that the, the book definitely ends, and there is some new beginnings that can be done. We have a lot of projects we're working on, so only time will tell.
1: Best of luck, and not only on this, but any endeavor in the future. Thanks for sharing your story.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: For Author Talk. this is Jay Douglas Barker.
0: You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages.
4: Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything.
0: Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world.
1: Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Milo, Autistic Warrior, a novel by Elizabeth Haddon, Doctor of Education. Welcome, Elizabeth, to the program.
5: Hello, Jay. I'm really happy to be here.
1: You live in Florida. Just for those who are listening from around the globe, Florida is a good place to live and uh, certainly has pleasant weather. You are there. You have uh, traveled the world as an educator, and yet you chose Florida as your place to retire. This book came out of that first steps of retirement, did it not? Yes,
5: it did. Yeah. um, When I retired, I moved. To Florida to help take care of my mother, um, who had declined quite a bit after my father's death, and I used part of that time to write, yeah.
1: Describe for my listeners what the subject matter is under the title Milo Autistic Warrior. My presumption would be, as a uh, just a preliminary look, that this is a fictional novel. How would you describe it?
5: Well, I think that that's a good way to describe it, a fictional... Well, actually, I describe it more as a nonfiction fiction novel um, in the sense that all of the information uh, about autism and uh, childhood development in that sense uh, is accurate, uh, sort of up-to-the-minute research. And so there's quite a bit of, of information in there uh, for families, for parents, for educators... And yet I put it in a story format. I've written lots of nonfiction about education, and uh, then it occurred to me that this story might be a a more accessible way to talk about autism.
1: A very controversial area of development in our world, uh, the the idea of autism. What did you discover in your research, in your exposure to students who may have been diagnosed with autism, what was the most startling revelation that you have revealed in your book, do you think?
5: Well, that's a good question. The most startling, I think that uh, there's a, an assumption that because autistic children and adults often don't respond in an empathetic manner, to their caregivers or peers or teachers, parents uh, that they don't experience empathy when in fact that, that is not the case at all. I think that uh, autistic children and, and adults do experience empathy. The thing is that they don't necessarily interpret the communication cues in the same way that non-autistics do and so we as non-autistics might think oh you know he doesn't get it or she doesn't she's in her own world or something like that when really they're they're just not interpreting the cues correctly and the more information they can get about what certain facial expressions or verbal uh statements mean then the more able they are to really connect with whoever they're speaking with
1: and there really is a broad range of autism as well.
5: Absolutely, and that, that gets addressed in the book. The, the main character, Milo, is a somewhat uh, socialized child. Uh, I follow him from middle school through adulthood. and um, uh, But throughout the book, I, I make it clear that Milo is one example of, of an autistic person, and that there, yeah, there's there's a the spectrum. I mean, there is a spectrum.
1: Huge spectrum. You have penned this and placed the storyline eight years to the future, at least from approximately from where we are today, 2020. Why did you choose mm-hmm. that future tense?
5: You know, one of the issues is that um, there there is an increased number of people being born with autism, uh, as is... Talked about in the news and various articles, and so it's now one in sixty-eight um, mm. children are born with with autism, and that it is a higher number for males, for boys. So uh, I started thinking about that in terms of the social implications that, or societal implications that there will be more and more people born with uh, autism in the future. And uh, it seemed like an important issue to address. So because it affects schools, it affects uh, several of our institutions, the caregiving that's often needed for adult autistics and um, even government programs.
1: Your main character, Milo, and the story surrounding him, would you describe it as character-driven or would you also... Describe maybe some action scenes or some other aspects of the story that you have conveyed,
5: well, I created Milo's family uh so that uh, other issues are also addressed besides his own issues. They are certainly addressed uh but his his father his parents had neglected him once again, thinking and being told by professionals that he's in his own world and mm-hmm. just don't expect much uh. And, but, but I made his mother someone who grew up with uh, an autistic sister. And while some siblings of kids with what we call disabilities are uh, very loving and attentive and learn so much from their siblings, uh, other siblings are have a very different experience. And in this case, Winnie, the, uh, Milo's mother, had that kind of different experience. She was expected to care for her sister in ways that she found humiliating and embarrassing around other kids. You know, at a time in her life when all she wanted to do was fit in and be liked, um, she got known as the kid with the weird sister. And she grew to really resent, uh, despise uh, her sister's existence and um i think that's a, that's an issue that we need to look at more that that the siblings of kids with difficulties really need information and support uh, and not be expected to kind of know what to do uh, to help out
1: sure we've talked about the wide range of spectrum of uh, mm-hmm. learning and communication styles and abilities of Individuals diagnosed with autism, does Milo have the ability to communicate uh, differently than some that we have noted in perhaps our observations, where they are are not don't have any verbal skills, or is, does he have right. verbal?
5: <clears throat> right. Milo is verbal. He Wonderful. wasn't always verbal, but um, came to to begin using language uh, as a as a youngster, and uh, so he is verbal and. While he doesn't understand much of what's going on around him or why people are angry with him or upset with him, uh, demanding certain things of him that he just, he can't do, uh, he, so he's frightened quite, quite a bit of the time. He's frightened by the people around him and is in what is commonly called a defensive mode, uh, rather than being able to perceive in a more relaxed, perceive what's going on in a more relaxed way he's kind of frightened of things uh, as they happen and that really cuts out a lot of the of the communication as we know the brain the brain perceives uh, emotional uh, bullying as it were as uh, the, the same way the brain perceives physical trauma and so it shuts down and uh, and that's I think that's where a lot of kids who grow up frightened find themselves, is in a shutdown, just don't talk to me, don't bother me, don't do anything, just leave me alone, when really it's because they're, they're actually in pain and, uh, and don't know how to respond to the world around them.
1: Your title, Milo Autistic Warrior, the autistic warrior part of your subtitle, is interesting. Why choose that? And to whom was this book written?
5: Mm. I choose the word warrior. It's a it's a word that's used in the autistic community uh, in some some ways. And the other thing, the other part of that word warrior, though, is that kids who are growing up in what we call different ways uh, have to work so hard and have to have so much courage to navigate the world as we present itself to them um, meaning family life uh, communication issues uh, school learning all those things that for some folks come kind of naturally or they're even curious and they want to know more they want to learn more things um, I think that it, it takes it takes so much, Energy and effort, the way a warrior, uh, expresses really fantastic effort to accomplish something or solve a problem. And so I associated him with that word. I wrote the book for, you know, for parents of kids with what we'll call disabilities or differentness and, um, educators certainly who find themselves faced with autistic kids and, and other kids, you know, ADHD kids. There's a lot of different uh issues that, that appear in classrooms. I've worked in schools for over twenty five years, uh and I know that teachers are sometimes just kind of floored by by behavior of these kids and see them as sort of the interrupters, um in a classroom, in a classroom that they want to flow calmly and successfully, and sometimes these other kids are, are disturbing that. And so teachers often don't know what to do mm. to help the child as well as to help the other kids in the classroom who are disrupted or uh, distracted by various behaviors. The, at first.
1: Yes, describe the the underlying message that you hope comes through from your story of Milo the autistic warrior
5: that that autistic kids think differently than how than people who don't have autism they actually think differently they communicate differently and instead of seeing that style of thinking and communication as flawed that it's much much better and certainly we are able to more get get into that style of communication with an autistic child or adult, uh, and change our expectations. Not that they don't communicate, but that, uh, we need to learn how they communicate successfully and, and phrase, present our own selves, um, into that world for them so that they can connect with us.
1: Your book has been described this way. Milo, Autistic Warrior, is a novel about family relationships, autism, repressed rage, and the courage required to find identity in the midst of fear and destructiveness. That sums it up pretty much. Uh, how would you d- introduce this to someone that's listening and get them interested in getting their own personal copy of Milo? Well,
5: as as a book that is informative, so if they're needing uh, information and maybe a different way of thinking about autism, that uh, it's it would be really useful for them to, to read the book. The other is, you know, so many comments I've received about the book are from parents of autistic kids, as well as people in workplaces who don't understand why the guy down the hall or the woman in the next cubicle is so difficult to communicate with. And instead of being angry and dismissing the other person, uh, there's a lot of information in the book about the value of finding, of phrasing questions in a certain way, not using idioms. There, there, are certain, uh, there are ways that we can communicate much more successfully with adults on the spectrum as well as children. And so, yeah, it's for parents and educators uh grandparents I hear so frequently from older older adults that they have grandchildren who are on the spectrum and they don't know what to do. They don't know how to help. And so there are some some ways, some some suggestions about if you do this then that you'd be a lot more successful. And so uh it's not a treatment book per se, uh but it is for people who have autistics in their lives and who want to to improve their their own communication with that with that person.
1: And as you've mentioned, some ideas that may help us in our communication with difficult people. So thank you for sharing that insight as well. The title is Milo Autistic Warrior: a novel by Elizabeth Haddon, Doctor of Education. Elizabeth, thank you for joining me today. Is there a follow-up book to this in the works?
5: Yes, as a matter of fact, I'm writing a sequel to, uh, to that book showing Milo, uh, he's older now and he's needing to deal with some of the issues of work, of friend- or adult friendships, maybe even a relationship uh, in the sense of a <clears throat> romantic kind of uh, relationship, and and the struggles he has with the whole concept of normal what's normal in our society. The second book focuses quite a bit on maybe revisiting that that issue of being normal and looking at, at our society as more what's called neurodiverse in the sense that people, we all have different capacities and ways of relating and uh, that we need to expand our view of what's acceptable behavior and what's what we can connect with. The kind of behavior and thinking that we can connect with, and not demanding that people be like us or what we define as normal.
1: Elizabeth, where do my listeners get a copy of Milo, Autistic Warrior?
5: Oh, Milo's on Amazon, it's Kindle as well as uh, soft cover. It's in Barnes and Noble, and, um, the uh, the Author House website, and um, various bookstores.
1: You also have a website, I believe, under your personal name. Share that with yes, our listeners. I
5: do. I do, and I blog on that website, elizabethhaddon.com. There's more ways of connecting of thinking, more ways of thinking about people who are what we consider to be different.
1: Excellent. Haddon is spelled H-A-D-D-O-N for those of you who may... Uh, Not have that in your spell checker. You can do a Mm -hmm. uh, a friendly search (laughs) online under Elizabeth's name and find her and also the books that she produces. Thank you for joining me today, Elizabeth.
5: Thank you so much, Jay. I really enjoyed it.
1: My pleasure for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker.
0: You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. helping authors publish, promote and sell their books around the world.
1: Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our author who joins me from California, Robert Abati, has written a book titled Birds of Prey, and prey is spelled P R E Y. Robert joins me. Welcome sir to the program.
6: Hi, nice to uh, join you today.
1: Glad glad to finally catch up with you. had a little technical issue uh, yesterday when I tried to connect. You were uh, working under the disguise of another person's mind and body, so I I made a bad call. I had the wrong number by mistake and gave someone an early wake-up call, 6.30 their time. They were sort of unhappy. I apologize to you up front. You have written a book that is a fictional work, 488 pages. Am I describing it correctly? Yes is it based on uh, true events or is it something that your imagination just ran with
6: it that basically comes from the evil side of, of the right side of my my brain the evil side i would say a lot of the, the the storytelling was just as i'm driving commuting back and forth to work uh things would occur uh and in life uh that would then Uh, I I would think of things, of of, uh, chapters to write as uh, as I'm driving, commuting, and this is how I wrote the book over the years.
1: One thing that that caught my attention, you are uh, an author now and you have another career. You have pursued medicine. Am I understanding that as being your primary focus in life up to this point?
6: Yes, I've been a family physician for almost 35 years. Uh, getting to the end of my uh, medical career, and I've always wanted to be a writer. Uh, I've, uh, you know, written enough things over my lifetime as far as medical uh, articles and stuff, but always wanted to write some form of fiction. And the idea came to me uh, probably around 15 years ago um, uh, about writing a book uh, concerning serial killers. And that's when I started writing uh, Birds of Prey. Um normally i would do fourteen fifteen hours of work a day Get home nine ten o'clock at night and sit at a computer and write some of the things i would think about on the commute home and then broaden the chapters from there my wife uh... who has been my uh... reader and editor shall we say uh, over the years would look at me and and say, do I know you? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) As she's reading some (laughs) of the things that I write. Having been a a kid grown up in in the Bronx and and Mount Vernon, too, which is a city right above the Bronx, I was always the smallest one on the block and uh, would get shoved into the garbage pails, uh, put into the lockers at school. One of of those that was always picked on, Mm -hmm. uh, bullied, if you'd say today. Uh, and, and, you know, all the things in your mind as a, as a little kid growing up is, how would I get back at these people if I ever had the chance? Uh-huh. And that's the evil side of the brain. So some of the things that I wrote in the book, some of the, the uh, uh, basically the murder scenes, were, were some of the things I would have loved to have done people that I knew as a kid growing up, but never could, you obviously, never could. because of, yes. of my, my strict morals.
1: I would call that more creatively defensive, perhaps.
6: Yeah. Yeah, uh, catharsis, as we call it in medicine, You're getting all of the negative thoughts out of your head down onto paper, and it, it actually makes you a better person, a happier person, too. You, know, you don't carry any anger, then. The, your
1: your personal family history, your dad was uh, uh, quite a, uh, an accomplished creative as well, and, and your mother, tell my listeners a little of their background, it doesn't have any real absolute impact on your story necessarily, but it sure is interesting.
6: Well, my, my dad uh, was a normal person growing up in New York and uh, served in the Army. When he came out of the Army, he he played sax. He played actually multiple instruments. He was saxophonist, clarinet, and uh, oboe, mostly the, the woods. And when he came out of the U.S. Army, he actually played for the U.S. Army Band. Uh, he joined Les Brown and the band of renown and Played with them for about two to three years, and when he met my mom, uh, unfortunately, my uh, dad fell not lo- not unfortunately, fell in love. <laughs> but uh, my grandfather, uh, my mom's dad, was very strict as far as wanting somebody who was a worker to marry his daughter. And he basically told my dad that musicians were bums, and that he had to get a real job if he wanted to marry my mom. So he he basically quit music uh, to marry my mother. Uh, became, uh, at first, uh, worked in the postal uh, post office, and then became an insurance agent for Metropolitan Life for 30, 35 years before he had to retire for health reasons. And he would only play the sax when my mom wasn't home. Really? Which was actually, a, yeah, it was a sad thing. I, I remember we lived in an apartment house, and I remember walking down the hallway hearing the sax playing, and I'd put the keys into the door and it would stop and then i'd open the door and go oh it's only you and he would continue to play Um, for for one reason or another i I don't know why my mom just didn't want him to play and i probably because she felt that music would take him away from her yes Uh, because he he loved music just as i do Uh, i'm a drummer besides being a, a physician and a writer. So, so the, that, that music goes through the blood.
1: That creative uh, gene is still there and, and uh, uh, being passed along in the family. You have uh, also mentioned that you grew up in New York City. You also had some interaction with a renowned killer, David Berkowitz, son of Sam. How did that impact yeah, you? Yeah,
6: David Berkowitz, yeah, he actually was not only a postal worker, and he was our postal deliverer. Uh, he also lived in our neighborhood, uh, wow. my wife and I at the time. Uh, and I remember the day that he was arrested uh, as son of Sam, and I just looked at my wife and I just couldn't believe it. I said, this is the, the same person that we've known for the last couple of years, and you never knew it would be him. And then when, uh, as a med student, um, I actually visited him while he was in prison, When I was doing a psych rotation, um, it was an entirely different person. Uh, The the eyes just looked through you, uh, literally scared the bejesus out of you. Amazing. And uh, from that point on, I started doing a lot of research on serial killers, and I've always been an avid reader uh, of many uh, novelists. And... To my surprise, what I found was that the the heinous crimes that you always read about, like the Zodiac killer or Ted Bundy, they were not only psychopaths, but they were also sociopaths. And there's a big difference between a psychopath and a sociopath. And my image of of David Berkowitz was he was a true psychopath, because he had delusions, he had hallucinations, he was schizophrenic. Whereas most killers are not psychopaths. They're sociopaths. They have no morals. They have no conscience. Hmm. And and they like to kill. Uh, unfortunately, many of, like, the, the BK killer in uh, the Midwest, who was an elder in a church. Right. He was actually a sociopath, not a psychopath. He, he was not delusional or hallucinatory or schizophrenic. He was just a next-door neighbor who <laughs> just loved to kill people. Oh. Uh, obviously deranged and demented, but... Uh, not really a psychopath, so that's where I based my main killer on. the The, the, the main killer of my novel was a sociopath um, who just loved to kill and had the means and whereabouts and training to kill.
1: It's been described. Your uh, Birds Birds of Prey is described as a fictional story of a notorious serial killer thought to have been caught by the FBI and executed in West Virginia. Only to resurface 10 years later in Southern California. What is the name of your character, and uh, are there any redeeming values in your storyline, or is it all scary?
6: No, uh, it's it, basically it, the, the main character's name is Frank DiMacchio. Uh, that's the killer. He's an ex Marine, uh, sniper, assassin, uh, made his career over the years as a mercenary, uh, you know, loads of money, but also. Left a trail of blood wherever he went, not only as a killer for hire for different governments and stuff uh, but also as a uh, murder of women so what happened in in the story is that supposedly the man who was executed in West Virginia he was known to Frank Frank basically stole his identity you know, stole his identity but also framed him ah. and so this man and, and was perfectly framed and then frank moved on to california and started doing his thing all over again and the story is though that the main predator of frank who is uh, philip DeMarco, the, the main good character of the book who chp lieutenant um knew this man from years ago because he was a homicide detective at first in san francisco also an ex-marine and frank his first murder was that of his own mother, mm. but could never be proved. And Philip DeMarco was the arresting officer of Frank when he was the 13-year-old kid and tried to get him convicted. And so the, the story then it becomes a personal vendetta between the two.
1: Uh, Rob, as as um, a, as a descriptive of your book, would you call this character-driven uh, or, or or mystery or thriller? I know it's...
6: It's a thriller. thriller. It's, I, I wanted to write a, turn, a page-turner. Yes. Something that when you're on vacation, you want to escape into a book that you're sitting on the beach, and it's like, okay, you don't even realize the sun's going down. Mm. You're just turning the page, turning the page, turning the page.
1: Not recommended for children, for sure.
6: No, 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 no. This is adults only. There is some some language in there, but it, it's it's a lot of um, mayhem, shall we say? <laughs> the 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 other side of the coin is obviously you you know you want to have good over evil. I mean that's just the other side of the story. Good always triumphs over evil at some point or another. There is some political views that I put into there because I. They've basically been anti-government since the 60s. I mean, I was at the original Woodstock
3: uh-huh.
6: when I was a 15-year-old kid. Mm. So it's like, you know, uh, I have some anti-FBI views, some anti-government views, and there are also, well, I throw some of those things in.
1: Does your book and your storytelling have maybe one scene that will stand out to the reader?
6: Mm. That's, a, that's a good question.
1: I know you have a lot um, of action in
6: it. Yeah, there's a lot in there. Probably... Probably the, the the scene when the, the chapter where he literally kidnaps uh, the lieutenant's niece. Hmm. There's a, one or two chapters where it's taken place in Berkeley. That's probably, it, it, that's the um, peak of the book, shall we say? Sure. And then the chase is on from there. So that's the scene that changes everything.
1: Besides your wife, who is an adult and has read your book, and became terrified after reading it. Is there any other individual that's read your book, and what's the feedback been?
6: I've actually had uh, some patients read the book, and a couple of them <laughs> have uh, told me that this should be made into a movie, which that would be fine by me. Uh, they loved it, uh, and I even told them, you know, you can be honest with me, and and they were. Uh, most of my patients uh, are very honest with me. Uh, both as a writer and as a physician they'll they'll tell you exactly what they feel, so I've gotten good feedback um all of my friends who have read it and uh, some of the people that I uh, acquaintances have all said it's good and like more people to read it sure uh, I think it's worth it like I said, it's a page turner
1: four hundred and eighty eight pages that's um, a that's an ambitious that's an ambitious project for is this your first published novel?
6: Yeah, it was funny when I was uh talking to Arthur House about getting it published and they were quoting the prices and you know I said, "Well, I thought I only had about 75 or 80,000 words and then I finally tabulated and it was 125,000." And my wife always said that I can <clears throat> BS with the best of them, so she goes, "Boy, you didn't stop in that book." Uh, but it's not BS. It's it's just one story uh, woven into another. Uh, I guess you could say it was just a continuation of a story until it finally climaxed. Is that how
1: you would describe this to someone who uh, discovers that as a physician you have become an author and this is your first book, Birds of Prey?
6: Yes, yes. It, and I would consider it, if you if you go to music, a, a bolero, where it increases in intensity as you go through the chapters until it finally climaxes at the end. And that's the way I tried to write it, like a bolero in music. It uh, starts soft- and then draw the the audience in and then intensify it as the chapters go by.
1: Any other authors that you have uh, not tried to emulate but have admired and uh, perhaps hope your writing style is accepted as well as theirs?
6: The main one is John Sanford. I have written I've read I've written, excuse me, I've read every one of his books uh, and that's where I even thought of getting the prey idea from because uh, a lot of his books are the prey books, uh, but the His style is fantastic. I used to like James Patterson, but then he has too many ghostwriters writing for him, and I lost a little respect for people of uh, others who write for them. Before then, uh, Robert Ludlum, uh, mm. when I was a younger kid growing up. Uh, I loved the Bourne uh, trilogy. Um, all, I took a course at NYU during college on Hemingway and Faulkner and loved Hemingway. Faulkner just, wow. Uh, I still can't understand him. Uh, Uh, If you ever read Absalon, Absalon, it's
1: like, okay. Those those are amazing writers and had, I'm sure, an indirect influence on your writing style. Is this project and uh, completion of Birds of Prey been exciting enough, and uh, has it caused you to begin writing a sequel or a follow-up or a different approach to a novel?
6: The sequel is one chapter from being done. Uh, it took me 15 years to do Birds of Prey. It's taken me nine months to write to write to Pond, mm. which is the sequel.
1: Getting better or more forgiving? I don't know which it is.
6: Uh, actually, the I actually have four books that are going at once. Uh, again, I have plots that run through the right side of my brain, shall we say, uh, and I've written these down, and the to upon plot uh, was actually in the back of my mind as a continuation. As I finished the first book, I had already had probably half of the second book already thought out in my brain.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Um, thank you Thank you for sharing your, yeah. your insight into Birds of Prey. Our guest, Robert Abadi, thank you, sir, for joining me today. I want to make sure my listeners know where to get a copy of your book. Where can they find it?
6: Uh, you can go to, uh, the www.robertabadi.com. Uh, you can go to Birds of Prey, uh, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's on The Nook and all the ebooks.
1: Thank you so much. And Abadi is spelled A-B-A-T-T-I for those of you who would like to do a search online and keep in contact with Robert and his writing and his writing style. Thank you again for joining me today, sir.
6: Thank you very much for having me, Jay.
1: Look forward to visiting with you in the future. This book, again, is titled Birds of Prey, our author, Robert Abadi. For Author Talk. this is Jay Douglas Barker.